0: Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, Episode 24. And this episode is a continuation of Episode 23. This is Modern Cult Thrillers, Part 2. Episode 23 was obviously Part 1. And on this episode, we are going to cover two films. The first is... 2005's Cachet, directed by Michael Haneke. And we'll also be talking about 2020's My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To. So let's get right into it, shall we? Cachet from 2005, directed by Michael Haneke. Probably best known for his 1997 film, Funny Games, as well as his 2007 film, Funny Games. Yes, he remade his own movie, Ten Years Apart. Incredible. I'm a big fan of Hanukkah's, um, particularly the 1992 film, Benny's Video. Recommend that very much. And um, but today we put a soft focus on cachet. Also released in the UK under the title Hidden. The reason for this is that the UK sucks. So also, I won't be presenting this episode in an NPR whispery voice. An NPR, an NPR whispery voice. Won't be doing that. Why won't I be doing that? Okay, let me explain. Cache is one of those movies that's spoken about, like CNN talking about the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The, the insurrection, the imaginary insurrection. Anyways, with they they speak with they speak about it with with reverence and respect. They may not. Maintain a somber tone. Like, they... They talk about this movie like like this. The U.S. inflation rate is the highest it's been since 1982. Okay? I'll just talk to you like a person, and if you wish to mentally edit the natural sarcasm out of my voice, feel free. Um... I mean, this film, along with a lot of, uh, Hanukkah's films are, I mean, he's a really amazing filmmaker. And this film in particular is one of his films. That's been pondered over, uh, over what, what its meaning is and what, like, what is, what is the underlying point of this story? It's, it's a it's like, it's like uh, people obsessed with the shining and wanting to deconstruct it and and do these deep analysis reviews and and that's that's kind of how cache is oh my my rubber gorilla toy fell over let me stand him back up there you go I have a I have a uh, rubber gorilla uh, figure that I keep up on my desk. He's like the unofficial mascot of Skeleton Factory. So I won't unfold the mystery of this story to you in so much as I, uh, instead, I'm going I'm to do more, I'm going to do two things. Okay. First, I'm going to point out the general plot. And highlights of the film. Does that mean it's spoiler free? No. Because on the Skeleton Factory podcast. We have a rule. We don't really believe in spoilers here. Spoilers are insignificant here. So if you haven't watched Caché. And you haven't watched My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To then maybe you should go watch it and then, <laughs> and then listen to this. Or you can just listen to this and then watch it. That's what I recommend. Because maybe I'll describe the film and you'll think, that sounds stupid, I don't want to watch that movie. And then you can just not watch it. Or maybe you'll listen to this podcast and decide, hey, That sounds like a pretty good movie. I want to watch that. And uh, you'll watch it because, you know, no matter how I describe it, I'm very self-aware when it comes to how I speak and how I deliver information. I'm not the most effective communicator. Um, I say um a lot because I'm constantly thinking. I can't stop my brain from moving. But, you know, I, I do what I can. So if you... You know, if you listen to this and you want to go watch the movie and then you don't like the movie, feel free to contact me on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory and tell me how much of a fucking idiot I am. And you hate the movie and Michael Hanukkah is a fucking piece of shit and he's uh, an exploitative Austrian dickhead. Like, you can do that. That's fine. I think everyone should have a, an opinion. But, yes, first I'm going to, I'm just going to kind of point out the general plot and some general highlights to the story. And then, and second, I'm going to point out what I will call the non-universal subtext. I literally made up that term yesterday, the non-universal subtext. What does that mean? Well, I have, I have a loose definition of it as of right now. Um, a non-universal subtext is subtext. That is not a universally shared experience, but could be understood to an outsider. Okay. So, You may not be, if you're listening to this, you may not be a billionaire. You may not be a member of a royal family. You may not be a Olympic gold medalist. You may not be a former prisoner of war. You may not be... You know, somebody who's been in a plane crash and survived. But you could understand what being one of those things might be like. So in the era of people's lived experience, with, fi- with finger quotes I'm making, lived experiences are... This idea that, um, like, well, if you haven't lived through it, you can't understand it. Like, eh, I don't, I don't really buy that. Otherwise, people wouldn't write books about things like war, and people wouldn't make movies about war. And like, like, yes, it's, it, it's probably you'd probably have a more well-rounded understanding of what. A certain subject is if you actually lived through it, but that doesn't mean that people can't have it articulated to them in a way where they might be able to understand the the that particular situation. Okay, and so the, all of that, all that um, that I just spewed out of my face. That is what I call a non-universal subtext. And I invented that term specifically because of this movie. This movie has a lot of serious real-life shit connected to it. Sort of like historical atrocities sort of connected to the story of this movie. And... Um, I but it's but it happened in a country that I am not from none of my family is from France for instance and uh, specifically in this movie there's reference to the, uh, the Algerian war between France and Algeria and essentially, war crimes committed by France against Algerians. Like, I don't understand that particular breed of French colonialism. and um, Not that I don't understand, but I didn't live through that. Like, my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, they didn't live through that. But I could read about those stories. I can read articles and watch movies and listen to podcasts and things discussing those particular historical events and get in some kind of understanding of what those events mean in the broader scheme of things. Okay. Okay. And this film, Caché, is a perfect example of that. So let's get started. <laughs> Long story short, let's get started. Also, I want to mention one more thing. I want you to keep this in mind, okay? Everyone in this film is a liar. Keep that in mind. Everyone, in, every character in this film is lying in some way. And I think knowing that will help in understanding what this film is actually about. So, without any further ado, let's get to the general plot and highlights of the film. We have uh, a story of a family who lives in Paris, modern-day 2005 Paris. We have wife, we have a father, and we have a son. We have a family living in Paris. We have the character of Georges Laurent, played by Daniel Atoya. His wife, Anne Laurent, played by Juliette Benoche. Their son, Pierrot Laurent, played by Lester Mekodonsky. And the three of them live in a lovely modern home in Paris. George is the host of a successful television show, a a literary television show. uh, Talking about all things literature. One day, a mysterious videotape arrives on their doorstep. The tape's footage is of the front of their home taken from across the street. There is no camera movement. There is no narration. There's no music. It's just hours of footage from the front of their house, like surveillance footage. The tape itself has no label, no writing on the tape. It was The tape itself was left on the doorstep in a plastic bag and no meaningful distinguishing marks are left on the bed. George and Anne are not sure what to make of this tape. A day or two later, another tape arrives. This time... The tape is wrapped in a sheet of white paper. On the paper is a drawing of a stick figure's head with red blood pouring out of its mouth. After this, there are similar stick figure drawings with blood coming out of the mouth. Uh sent to George's work and Pierrot's school. And they come in the form of a postcard. So these pictures are drawn on a postcard and the back is addressed to them both. So Anne and George go to the police And given that no real crime has been committed, police can't do anything. And this leaves George and Anne very frustrated. And then we jump to a third tape that gets delivered to the Laurent house. During a dinner party that George and Anne are having. Doorbell rings. George goes to answer the door. No one's there. George goes to go back inside and notices in the doorway. A plastic bag with another videotape. This time the drawing that accompanies it is the drawing of a chicken with blood coming out of its neck. Now this is all out of out of sight from the dinner guests and George tucks the tape away and is figures, okay, we have guests Let's just get through the dinner party, and then I'll address this tape when they are gone. But as soon as he gets back inside and wants to press the issue, who was at the door? George says no one is at the door. She's like, well, if no one was at the door, what were you doing gone so long? And she's, and then she starts saying... Uh, <laughs> She just she just dry snitches out their whole shit. She just airs out their their dirty laundry in front of their their, their guests, um, saying everything about from mysterious phone calls and the videotapes and and George is like, okay, well, since you want to tell everybody about our uh, our private uh, creepy shit that's been going on. Let's watch the tape together, shall we? So he goes and retrieves the tape, puts it in the v c r and when it turns on, it's in it's a a shot from inside of a moving vehicle, and the moving vehicle pulls up to this large home, presumably in the country somewhere and George recognizes the home immediately. He says that's the home I grew up in. That's like my family home. Now George begins to have some suspicion of who might be sending these tapes. It's one thing to send things to your work or your kid's school or to your house, but sending something that seems so specific it means that somebody knows George enough to know where his, his parents live. And we cut to, and, and, it, and it may not seem obvious while watching it, but uh, it cuts to this very quick snippet of a dream that George has where he dreams about a young boy sitting in a windowsill and in the dream he walks up on the boy and startles the boy and the boy has blood dripping out of his mouth and then that's the dream and George begins to have suspicions and he, eventually we find out that his suspicion is that the person sending the tapes is this young boy that he briefly knew when he was six years old. So George's family had a bunch of farm workers working for, um, well, on the estate of his, of his family. And they were all uh, Algerian. Um, the, the There was one particular family who had a young boy. And the parents, it suggested that the parents of this young boy named Majid were murdered uh, during the uh, Paris massacre of 1961 in and specifically, the Paris massacre was during the Algerian War, and this is uh, this is mentioned by George to his wife Anne in one scene where he talks about um, Majid's parents most likely died in this in the Paris massacre of of sixty one, where the French government may, uh, well, specifically the the French police um, may be responsible for as many as, depending on what numbers you look at, somewhere between two and three hundred Algerians. So, as the story goes, the French national police uh, attacked a demonstration by thirty thousand pro National Liberation Front Algerians. This attack wasn't acknowledged until nineteen ninety-eight, so this is something that has been in that has been sort of swept under the rug in France for quite a long time. Now the French government in and, and nineteen ninety eight they acknowledged the death of forty Algerians. But depending on what, what estimates you look at, it's more like somewhere between two and 300 Algerians uh, were murdered. And murdered specifically from uh, physical attacks from the police, as well as a mass drowning. From the police throwing demonstrators into the La Seine, the Seine River. And this is referenced in the film. This is referenced by George. So, so when we get to discussing in more detail about the character of Majid, Majid's parents presumably were murdered during this massacre, which left Majid an orphan. So George's parents decide to adopt Majid, but the process wasn't fully realized. Anyone who's ever had to deal with adoption of a child, it is quite a long process. So I guess that's no exception and, France in the sixties. And I actually used to be employed by an adoption agency when I lived in uh, San Francisco. And yeah, I know firsthand when you want to adopt a child, especially one who's in another country, the process of getting the child to your home safely is could take years It can be very expensive, and it can take a a long time. So, and it takes a lot of patience. So, but in the story, Majid is in the custody of George's family until the adoption is finalized. One of the tapes that the that George and Anne receive. Is footage from inside of a car driving down a street. And then the car pulls up to a building. And then the footage of cuts to a hallway of some type of low income housing apartment complex. Walking down the hall, walking past all these doors, and then stops at one door. And then the tape ends. So George and Ann begin studying this tape and trying to reverse engineer and take apart the film, like frame by frame, and figure out where is this road, where is this apartment building, and where is this apartment. So, um... Now Majid is the only person, and this is in this is in one of the sort of like little dream sequences that George has. Uh, one is the boy with blood coming out of his mouth, and another dream that he has is of a young Majid cutting off the head of a chicken with a hatchet. And this well, rooster. The and, and both and both dreams are can be quite disturbing because they one they you know they involve children and they're both gory. The second dream where Majid cuts the rooster's heads off, cuts the rooster's head off, and blood splashes in his face, and. A young George is watching this. And then Majid turns to him and begins approaching him with the hatchet. Very scary image. This young boy with a hatchet with blood on his face. And then George wakes up. So this all makes sense with the tapes that's sent with the childlike drawing of the face with the blood coming out of the mouth. And then later the tape with the chicken, the chicken head with blood coming out of its neck. And then the footage from the, I believe the third tape of the footage of the car pulling up to George's family home. And I want to point out right here, people who talk about this film say that if like who sent the tapes, if you're more worried about who sent the tapes, then you like missed the point of the movie. And I think that's only partially true because I'm fine with the idea that they never specifically say in the film Who set the tapes. I'm fine with that. I don't have a problem with that. I'm fine with a movie. Leaving things sort of ambiguous. Mm, Excuse me. Just take a hit off of my. Lovely. Old fashioned. Made from. A lovely. Rye whiskey. From Balcones. Distillery. Here in Texas. I'm fine with a movie being. Kind of. Ambiguous and not too specific with details, and you have to kind of like put the pieces together yourself. I'm fine with that, but the idea that Majid didn't have a hand, even an indirect hand, in these tapes being sent to George and Ann is just ridiculous. And I've <laughs> In my research, I've found all kinds of shit that is, um, I mean, from very hoity-toity, smart people who won't acknowledge that Majid at least, if he didn't send the tapes, he at least provided a detailed story of his life to someone who sent the tapes because I mean, why, why the, the drawings, you know, why the footage of the, of George's family's estate. It's like somebody who would have known those specific stories could, could only have sent the tapes, right? That's, that seems logical. doesn't necessarily mean Majid did it, but it makes him a very, very good suspect. So let me get back to the um, the last tape that's sent and that is the one of the apartment that George and Ann figure out where the actual this apartment is. And once they realize where it is, And asked what George like, well, now that you know where this place is, what are you going to do? George is like, well, I'm going to go to the, go to the apartment. And Anne says, well, well, the least you can do is bring a cop with you maybe. And George is like, I'm not, I'm not involving the cops. I'm just going to go there. And this is obviously very concerning for, Imagine if your wife had to deal with you going to some random neighborhood and knock on the apartment door of, you know, you don't know what's on the other side of that door. You don't know if it's somebody who's going to try to harm you or, or what? The apartment could be nothing, you know, it's like, but George has to know why send a video showing this, showing this neighborhood, showing this building and showing this apartment. Why? George goes to the apartment. Knocks on the door. Well, rings the doorbell, whatever. And who opens the door but an adult Majid? He hasn't seen Majid since he was six years old. And here he stands before him. And at this point, George is very... Understandably, he's he's pretty wound up. He's pretty... Uh, he's paranoid, he's scared, he's uh, very short-tempered. And when Majid opens the door, Majid is very calm. Majid is, seems even happy to see him. And George doesn't recognize him immediately. Majid invites him inside and and... Majid's Majid's uh, apartment, his dwelling, is very, it's very modest. You can tell that the building that he lives in is a, um, well, it's it's specifically a form of low income housing. Um, it's it's a what's referred to as an HLM, which is uh, it's a type of low income housing that's primarily found in France and Algeria, Senegal and Quebec. So, so yeah, it's basically government housing. George comes inside, sits down with Majid in the kitchen and, and George wants to know, like, what do you, what do you want? Why are you sending me these tapes? Why are you harassing my family? What is it you want for me? And Majid's still comp- very calm. It's like I don't, like I don't want anything from you. And he's like, "Why do you? Why are you sending me these tapes and these letters and freaking out my family and freaking me out?" And, and Majid is just has that no idea what he's talking about. He's he denies ever having sent him anything. So, now, if Majid is telling the truth, he may be telling the truth, He may not be telling the truth, but at any rate, just his demeanor really makes this scene very, very tense because if he sent the tapes and now George is actually in his home confronting him and he's like not even batting an eye, just totally calm, that's scary. And, but if he did send the tapes and he's totally responsible and he wanted this confrontation wanted george to find him and now he's here and is still that calm like you know going in that direction it's it's freaky but Majid tells him i never sent you anything i never i don't know anything about videotapes i don't know anything about any drawings, postcards, phone calls—none of that. That's not me. I'm not responsible for that. So George, in in, a, you can tell he's frustrated and he's uh, afraid. He uh, basically threatens Machine. Tells him, if anything ha- ever, you know, if. If you send me any more shit, any more tapes, any more phone calls, any letters, if you do anything to harm me or my family, you'll regret it. And Majid's like, Are you are you threatening me? And George's like, Yeah, I am threatening you. And Majid's like, Well that's that's too bad. You know, I never sent you anything. It's a shame that we haven't seen each other in so long, and this is our first encounter in so long. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I, I never sent you any videotapes. So, so then another t- <laughs> after this, a- another tape appears. This time, it is sent to George's boss at his work one of his employers after George leaves Majid's apartment George uh, goes home and talks to Ann and explains to Ann I went to the apartment there was nobody there and this must be some kind of joke some kind of prank or whatever but I went all the way to the apartment no one answered the door so he lied to his wife and was it to protect her? I don't know, but he lied to his wife. So, I mean, of course he's going to get caught and ends up seeing the tape anyways. And now George is in a position where he's caught lying and now has to explain to Anne who that not only does the, the person he suspects he he's pretty sure that the person that he suspected is the person that is sending these tapes. And now he's got to explain his past with this guy, Majid. And the story uh, that George tells is that uh, the story of, well, Majid's story as a boy, that his parents were farmhands on George's parents' property. They died. His parents wanted to adopt Majid, but then George began, the, he resented Majid and didn't want to have some other kid around. He felt that Majid was invading his his space, and, and he just didn't want some other kid living in his house, which as, you know, at six years old, I could understand that, you know, you just... At that age, your family's your whole world. And just to have some other kid move into your house and steal your parents' attention could be, you know, could be devastating. But he explains that he told his parents that he saw Majid coughing up blood, which explains the dream. It explains the drawing. And this was not true. He told his parents that Majid was, he was very sick and he was coughing up blood and George's parents had Majid checked out and there was no indication that Majid had any kind of ailment or illness or anything like that. So George took it a step further and told Majid that he his father. George's father George told him that his dad wanted him to kill one of the roosters because it was a, it was a rambunctious ornery rooster and George's dad wanted the thing killed and wanted Majid to do it. So Majid killed the rooster and under, you know, under the assumption that this was, Something that George's dad wanted him to do, and he was just trying to be a good boy. But this was a trick on George's part to get Majid in trouble and ultimately kicked out of the home. Ultimately, Majid gets taken away. The you um, know whoever whoever takes children into foster care comes and takes Majid away so this is one of those things that you know it's like how malicious is a six-year-old boy who's you know just. I mean it's not above a six-year-old to lie it's not above a six-year-old to make up things to get other another kid in trouble and probably doesn't understand the the implications of what they're doing, doesn't understand the, the the especially in Majid's case, the repercussions of Majid lost his parents and if he gets taken away, now he's in foster care. So now he's in the system. And but George didn't understand this as a six year old, but I mean George being removed from the home is definitely George's fault. So then, their son Pierrot, who was supposed to be at a friend's house, they um, didn't come home. So, and I think it was Anne calls his friend's house and is like, "Hey, is uh, Pierrot there? Is he coming home?" They're like, "Yeah, he had he hasn't been here." So now. Pierrot has disappeared. They don't know where their kid is. So they got all this shit going on, and now their son vanishes. And so... And Pierrot, he's a fairly independent kid. He's 12. Now, I don't know how independent you were when you were 12, but I was pretty independent by 12. I mean, I was pretty independent by 3, but... I don't know. I, I had a different upbringing than a lot of people. Like my parents left m- myself and my brother alone at a very young age. So Puro is 12 and now with all this crap going on, he vanishes. So George and Ann call the cops. Now George, along with two other police, with two police go to Majid's apartment because their son went missing. The only person that seems like they would have had any kind of grudge against them would be Majid. So they go to Majid's apartment and it is when the door opens that we're first introduced to Majid's son and if i had to guess majid's son is probably 17 maybe maybe 18 definitely a teenager but he's you know he's a he's definitely older than piro is so majid and his son get arrested they're questioned by the police but they the police can't prove that they did anything. They're suspected, but they can't prove any that anything has happened. They, there's no indication that a crime even took place. Eventually, Puro goes home. He goes home, and and is so happy that he's home. But at the same time, uh, Puro expresses... I mean, Puro's not... He's pissed at his parents. He's 12. He's already a rebellious, angry teenager who hates his parents and is in a full-blown rebellion stage. And Anne is trying to, like, <laughs> really let him off easy. But when she goes to talk to him, uh, Pierrot expresses that she d- he doesn't like the relationship that... Uh, Anne has with one of their friends named Pierre. And Pierre's... There's this scene that Anne and Pierre have in this cafe, I believe. I want to say it was after Puro disappeared. And she's very distraught. She's crying. She's got snot coming out of her nose. And Pierre's whole holding her very close and kissing her hand and kissing her head and very affectionate, very affectionate. And George is not around. So there's sort of this kind of hinting around that maybe Pierre and Anne maybe have fucked around once or twice in the past or are currently fucking around with each other because just the level of affection, it doesn't seem that of a friend trying to console a, a, a friend. It looks like a lover trying to console another lover. It's it's one of the it's another one of those things. And again, I bring it up again. Everyone in this movie is lying about something. <laughs> Rather deliberately lying or it's inferred that they're lying. So not no one No one in this movie is a saint. I want to point that out. There's some people who would have you believe that there's definitely good and bad parties in this movie. But I'm like, no, I think that everyone has got some dirt. And some people have dirt on other people and some people are just doing dirty shit and haven't been found out yet, but everyone is tainted in this movie, no matter how sincere and how much you like them as a character. Like uh, everyone in this movie has got s- some shit going on. That's shady. But anyways, the, the, the main thing is Pierrot is home. He's safe. His parents could relax. So after that scare and the whole thing with Majid and his son being arrested, and I mean, I think maybe they were held for like a day and then they were let go. The the police couldn't hold them on anything. Also, you still have the issue of the tapes. There's still no resolution to that either. So... (laughs) George gets a phone call from Majid, and then we cut to George's apartment. George comes back to the apartment alone and they go back into the kitchen. and George, George uh, uh, or Majid rather explains to George, he's like, I, "I'm glad you're here. I wanted you to be uh, to be here for this. And, uh, George is like, be here for, for what? And then you see Majid reaches into his pants, like, like is kind of fidgeting, reaches into his pants. And you're like, what is he doing? He's going to his pocket. What is he doing? And he pulls out a blade of some kind. And this happens with just within like a span of a couple of seconds, So, you don't have time to really process it. All you see is him reaching his pocket, pulls out a blade, and Majid slits his own throat, and blood sprays up on the wall. Majid falls to the ground and dies and bleeds out right there. And, my God. That's a... I probably should have said spoiler for that, but that fucking moment is like an hour and a half into the film. The buildup to that moment is so worth it. Cause the movie really lulls you into the state of like, there's moments of kind of panic and whatever. But for the most part, you're in this sort of like mellow rhythm, watching this whole movie and then when Majid slits his throat it's so fucking shocking it's fantastic like the first time I saw that like my mouth was wide open and also there's no music in this movie okay it's just it's all like diegetic sounds the whole movie it's just the sounds of cars and videotapes being rewound and dialogue and doors being open and closed. It's a very ASMR type of thing. Like most of Hanukkah's films. And it easily kind of like lulls you into this, this false sense of security. Like you, you, it kind of mellows you out. And, but when Majid slits his throat, you know, there's no music or anything. It's one, it's one locked Stationary shot. So it's just, you just have to sit and look at it. And it's, it shocked me. Like I didn't see it coming. And I was like, I applaud the movie for building up, building up the suspense to that point because it was pretty fucking awesome. It was like Majid's death in this movie. And I would compare it to the big kind of jump scare that's in the exorcist three i know i bring up the exorcist three a lot on the show but i love that movie and it's got one of the best scares ever in horror movies like one of the best scares ever and it's so worth it when it happens and it really milks the time until the actual scare takes place so so Majid kills himself in front of George. He wanted George to be there to see it. So George leaves and doesn't report it immediately to the police, but um eventually the police are informed that this takes place and the police don't they don't suspect George of they don't suspect any foul play basically they're The police are like, okay, this is a suicide and like, I'm sure they know all about like them reporting the fucking tapes and George going to the police and having them escort him to his fucking apartment to, you know, they know all that fucking shit, but the, there's nothing to indicate that G didn't kill himself. So, so George is, you know, not on the hook for anything. But he did have to witness a man slit his own throat. That's pretty fucked up. So that's sort of Majid's revenge for, I guess, what George did to him as a child, which is... I, I I think the movie wants to serve a bigger purpose. It's not so much that he's, like, bitter over some shit that happened when he was a kid, but it's more of, like, because of the world... Events, the, everything with the Algerian War and everything going on with police not being held accountable for abuse of protesters in France during that time, and you know it resulting in Majid's death, parents' death. But we do get that's the that's the thing is like we don't get the only closure that we do get the only closure that we get really is that we have some type of insight as to Georgia's relationship to Majid and what George's part was in radically altering Majid's life. And some may say for the worse, because it's not like Majid grew up to be like, a TV star like George. He may have became one if maybe he lived in George's family and maybe he maybe would have had a quote-unquote better life. But, you know, that's that's not a for-sure thing. But that's the only real closure we we get, really, is that Majid wanted George to know what he what he did and how it affected Majid. And it apparently it fucking affected him because he, you know, he fucking killed himself in front of uh, George. So, you know, leaving his, now Majid leaving his son fatherless because there's no mother in the picture. So there, it's like Majid's parents were taken away from him and now Majid's son has his uh, parents taken away from him. So it's this this terrible cycle that's taken place. And, you know, I think and, and Majid holds George responsible for that. Majid's son holds George responsible for that. So after the whole Majid suicide, uh, George goes back to work. And in the lobby of George's work, Majid's son appears. And says that he, very politely, you know, it's like he he says, I need to talk to you. And George is like, I don't have time to talk to you. You know, I have to get upstairs and go to work. And George gets in the elevator and Majid's son just jumps in the elevator too. And there's a bunch of people in there and it's very uncomfortable. Because Majid's son's just staring at George and George is like, oh God. This is awkward. And the fucking elevator is full of people. So it's not like uh, Majid can really, Majid's son can even really say anything to him. There's just this uncomfortable silence. But now with Majid dead, and even all the way up until Majid's suicide, Majid swears he never sent the tapes he's not responsible for sending the tapes the letters the postcards anything he's you know and he's very he seems very sincere about that he's like i don't know who's doing this to you but it's not me and so now uh george gets to the floor he needs to get on he gets out of the elevator majid's son gets out with him and he's like look whatever you need to say like say it now I need to I need to get inside and Majid's son is like you know and well George is basically like you need to stop fucking harassing my family you need to start stop sending these fucking tapes to my house and these fucking psychotic pictures and all this shit. he's like this needs to fucking end and Majid's son who also very sincerely is you know swears that he's not the person sending the tapes he's not involved in sending the tapes he's not responsible you know it's he is there because he's upset that his father died and his father killed himself because of George like George reappearing back in his life like dredged up some some of the worst memories in Majid's life and the the sadness of that drove Majid to kill himself and now Majid's son believes that like George is responsible for that you know, his Majid's death is now, you know, that should be on George's conscience. And Majid's son, like, George goes to leave, but then Majid's son basically shouts across the office like, uh, Hey, I need to talk to you. And everyone stops what they're doing. Is like, what the fuck is this dude yelling across the office? So fucking it cuts to them in the bathroom and George is like, all right. Fucking say what you gotta say because I'm fucking sick of your fucking shit. If just say what you gotta say and then fucking leave because I'm gonna call security. I'm gonna call the cops and have them fucking throw you out because now you're fucking just harassing me. And Majid's son is like, like, you know, w- like, what is it like to have a man's death on your conscience? His fucking blood on your fucking hands you're not really sure if George feels responsible for Majid's death. There's nothing even to indicate that George feels responsible for how Majid's life turned out. You know, uh, it's like all you know now is like Majid's older teenage son is now without parents he's on his own and George really you can tell he has some type of empathy for Majid's son's situation but at the same time George still has you know the he still has all he doesn't know who's sending all these tapes to his house and harassing his family and harassing him and harassing his job, like he does, And on top of that, he just saw a guy kill himself. So it's like George doesn't have any real, um, he, there's no resolution to him. Like things are still kind of up in the air. And then after this scene at the office, Majid's son leaves and then we're left with this, this shot in front of a in front of a school. It's like a junior high. And it looks like kind of maybe towards the end of the day when parents are going to pick up their kids. And it's just this static shot from across the street. Like a lot of shots in this movie. It just looks almost like surveillance footage. It's just just this flat shot that's just watching kids coming in and out of the school, parents picking up their kids, people walking by. And I actually missed it the first time I watched it until the, actually the very, very, like, end, like the very last second before the credits rolled. Because there's tons of people in the in the picture, right? There's There's kids everywhere, there's parents, there's cars going by and stuff, and but I noticed at the last second I saw Pierrot I saw George's son. It was one of the kids in among the kids coming out of this school. And I was like, wait a minute. And I rewinded it and went back to when that scene began. And I'm like, when did he appear? Cause it looked like he just magically appears. So I was like, when did he actually appear on camera? And Puro's son comes out with a group of friends and he walks down these little stairs and he is, uh, talking with his friends and then who appears, but Majid's son. And he walks up to him and you see him. He's just like, and the two of them kind of like walk off to the sidewalk together and they have a little private conversation and it looks really friendly. You see them kind of conversing and, and then they like, say goodbye to each other and, Pajied's son walks away, and then Pierrot goes back up with his friends and and then like the movie ends and you can and they're out of earshot you can't hear what they're saying to each other you just can kind of see sort of you can just kind of see the body language of them speaking with each other, but you you don't know what they're actually saying so That's basically the, <laughs> that's the general story and sort of the highlights of cachet. But now I want to get into non-universal subtext and all the sort of like, the, 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 the sort of, the more subversive meaning going on there's certain things about the movie that this is all, and all this is now going to be sort of like my opinion, my interpretation of the film. Cause I've heard a lot of different, uh, a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of different kind of like video uh, analysis and reviews and uh, like university class discussions and read a bunch of articles and, things like that about the movie. And there seems to be somewhat of a consensus of what's going on, but I feel like people are kind of parroting each other or I'm just completely missing the point, <laughs> which I com- I admit it could be the case because I do have my own um, ideas and prejudices and, you know, my own kind of like angle on things, but, A few things. One, like, I think, uh, Hanukkah plays this game with the audience where the one's perspective of the images that you're seeing are always unclear. Even though it seems very like it should be very cut and dry because there's not a lot of like camera cuts. There's not a lot of um, like shot reverse shot kind of dialogue shit going on. Like everything is, everything is, there's a lot of just like single camera shot, not moving type of stuff. So the move and there's no sort of like music that kind of indicates what you should be feeling at any given time. Or, you know, hinting at something ominous or anything like that. It's just, there's, so when the, the, your perspective is kind of secretly being muddled and fucked with, because you, when you watch a scene, you wonder whose perspective are we looking at? And I think Hanukkah likes to mess with the idea of when you're watching one of his movies, you're not watching it from your point of view. And that's kind of one of the things that makes his movies so uncomfortable. A lot of his movies are very uncomfortable and deal with kind of uncomfortable subject matter. Even, But a lot of the scenes in his movies, like the, won't, there's nothing really happening, but you feel like something is off. And it's, it makes you feel a little uneasy. But with his movies, you, when you're looking at one of his films, you wonder: like, is this the perspective of me, or is this the perspective of the character? Is this the perspective of the director? Are we looking at a scene that is objective or subjective? So, what I've kind of boiled down is I think Hanukkah, like his characters, he is lying by omission. Just like George, just like Anne, just like Puro in the story. You know, George tried to hide the his suspicions from Anne, and that's more. It's more. Uh, it's more specific in the film. I kind of glossed over it, but. He had he had suspicions of who was sending the tapes, but and Anne kind of questioned him about it, and he kind of refused to say any more about it. And she's like, "Well, what the fuck? I'm your wife. You should be able to tell me fucking anything, especially if it involves the safety of our family." And he's like, "He's like, I he's like, I "I have a a hunch who it might be, but I don't know, and I don't want to say anything unless I know." And she's like, "Well, what the fuck does that mean?" And then storms out of the room, sort of, and. I feel like Anne I feel like Anne may be having like an affair with her friend Pierre, who I didn't mention this earlier, but I, I believe Pierre is also her boss. So <laughs> um and that's even less like it's hinted at it's, it's hinted at in a way where their sort of physicalness with each other may suggest that there's something going on beyond simple boss employee friendship. And Puro, well, Piro vanished through a, a, a chunk of the movie when all this shit was going on. Also, there's, there's a there's a theory out there that Puro is the one responsible for sending the tapes. There's also a theory out there that Puro and Majid's son are working together to send the tapes. I think that's probably that's probably what's going on. So, Majid and his son, in my opinion, are both lying about the tapes. Majid's son is definitely lying. And the movie kind of positions things where, why would they lie? Like they, but I think you have to remember Majid's son and Pierrot are both teenagers and teenagers are fucking liars. (laughs) And the only way that they're, the only way they they'd be able to get away with this is if they lied. So, Pierrot, when remember he he doesn't come home, and his parents are like, "Oh, he must be at his friend's house. He always goes to his friend's house on Wednesday and whatever." And they called the friend's house, and they're like, "Yeah, he hasn't he hasn't been here all night." So, Pierrot obviously will lie to his parents about where he is so he can go fuck off and do whatever the fuck he's doing. But I think he's him and in in terms of timelines, it, there's nothing to indicate that Majid's son and Piro weren't cooking up this whole fucking shit together. But I, there's just too much information about George, like where he works, where Piro's, school is where his family's farm there's too many things that Majid's son between Majid and puro the two of them would they have the all the information needed to make the tapes they're the only ones that could have pulled it off that I mean that we're aware of in the story but you know, if there if this was if this was a police investigation, the two of them would be the biggest fucking suspects because they they have to they have to uh, explain if they had to explain where they were when fucking these tapes and all this other shit uh, started appearing. I don't think they'd be able to fucking answer in, in an honest way, but I think in a way. Majid's son denying his involvement in sending these fucking items to George and Ann is a, that denial is a reflection of George's denial of his responsibility for Majid being sent away as a boy and ultimately Majid's suicide because I think George is in some level of denial but i i don't think he feels responsible and i i think people can probably chalk that up to his status and privilege and his comfortable existence like why would he take ownership of something like that you know it doesn't you know he's he's got his he's got his perfect little life going on it's like if if people want to Blame him for shit that he did when he was, you know, a six-year-old boy. He just doesn't seem like a person that would have much sympathy for people like that. Regardless if they were uh, poor immigrants or or not, he just it doesn't seem like George would have uh, much sympathy for people in that situation. But I. But I think Majid denying that he had any involvement, like Majid having grown up in the world, in in modern day Paris, that world shaped him into essentially being a liar, like George is, <laughs> like George is. There's a, there's another idea that I hear a lot in there, there there there's a lot of things in this movie that get brought up a lot from a lot of different places and this idea of like collective guilt that France has over the Algerian war the the colonization the 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 61 massacre, like that whole, like all of that, there's like this idea of sort of like the collective denial and guilt over that part of their history, a shame that the, that the country carries. But in, in terms of, and that may be the case, but in terms of this movie, I don't buy the collective guilt narrative As, as written by, high IQed people with way more degrees than, than I have. Uh, you hear a lot about this whole idea of like the movie is sort of like a, an allegory for a, a collective guilt over colonization sort of thing. And I think that's people digging a little too deep into it, but I don't feel that George's, George feels guilty at all. I think Perot feels guilty. You know, I think he carries the shame of his father and his family, and I feel like Majid's son feels guilty living in a country that victimized his father, and now he wants some type of revenge or justice or something because there's this there's this idea that if you don't acknowledge uh, the evil of colonialism and your privilege and taking steps to correct the past and, and if you don't then you're a bourgeois piece of shit like there's that sort of attitude that is sort of like imprinted onto George and Anne's character in this movie from other people who like analyze and review this movie. And, and most of the time that's analyzed from a perspective of a a European perspective. And I'm not European, I'm American. So hearing those types of, Hearing a synopsis like that is sort of like, hmm, that's interesting. But it's, and I can sort of understand it, but it's not like I don't understand it like I understand that I don't understand it like they understand it. And that's when, (laughs) and that's when I get back to this idea of a non universal subtext. Like I can empathize with people who've been victimized by countries who want to invade and maybe uh, harm their people and turn their people, um, acquire their country's resources and victimize people really. Like I can, I can sympathize with that and I can am- empathize with it and I can, you know, I, I understand that that's wrong and I understand That that can lead to people doing evil things to their fellow man. Like, I get that. But that's not my experience because I'm not from France. I'm not from Algeria. I don't... That's not my lived experience, if you will. Yeah. This... it's, It's odd as... Being an American myself, the the because the idea of a melting pot that the U. the U.S. is it's it's sort of it's always been explained to me that it's in, in what I experienced that it opens up the idea that a melting pot as a melting pot we can all come together from all over the world under one national identity that is a patchwork of cultures and religions and races to boost each other up as individuals to realize what is known as the American dream. And, and, and to, that sounds very idealistic, but I think the idea of an American dream and, and what America is is able to not look past wrongs done to certain people by other people like, you know, Japanese internment camps or, uh, you know, colored drinking fountains and stuff like that past of America, I understand because that's the history of my country. I understand that and I have perspective of like, where this country was and where it is now is a huge jump, a huge positive jump. And for better or worse, we were able to get from there to here as a, as one country. And it's not always pretty, but all the multicultural idealists out there on some level, can look at where we were in the, like the fifties and where we are in 2022 and, and really be in awe of where, where we were, you know, when our grandparents were, or even our parents, I mean, my parents were alive in the fifties and where we are now. It's, it's, if you look at, if you look at that, that history, that gap of time is pretty fucking amazing. It really is. But that idea is also that idea also lets in resentful single minded shit disturbers through the back door who would like to use their I'm gonna use like air quotes their they're given status to manipulate and rig the system to boost them up. And I, and I guess a type of socio economic ladder type of way, a system of merit is seen as oppression, but at the same time, the voiceless don't have any pull or say of their own because they're, they're often poor and, don't have quite the resources of more privileged wealthier people. But at the same time, they, those voice, the, the, the voiceless, they tend to be represented by people who inevitably can and often do benefit from, quote-unquote helping through things like charity or lobbying or simply representing those oppressed people, but often take advantage of them. And that's fucked up. It's fucked up to see people with, like, even the ones that are seemingly good causes. Like, there's there's shit disturbers amongst them that want to like kind of you know siphon off things like money and fame and shit for themselves and really aren't helping the people that they allegedly are representing and that's something i think is also a very uh, that that's the that's the most diverse thing i can think of No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, there's always somebody who's out there like being the rah-rah person for any particular group and trying to get some type of justice and often money and resources or whatever for their people. But there's always those people in leadership roles, let's say in those groups that will fuck over their own people that they pretend to represent. It's yeah. And that, and that's every single political party. That's every race. That's every religion. And that's probably the one for sure thing that all people, at least in this country have in common. There's going to be someone out there who's going to, who seemingly represents your interests, that's going to betray you for their own personal benefit. But um, but that's my American perspective. You know, in in France, in the story of Cachet, George and Majid had very different upbringings but were eventually brought together as adults and but getting back to this idea of like the collective consciousness or the collective responsibility and acknowledgement of the colonial violence of France and specifically, where the movie is focusing in on during the Algerian War, like that's one specific. that's one specific thing that the movie is kind of like pushing forward. And again, I find it fascinating because being an American and America being a melting pot, there are so many people who have been fucked over by other, you know, ethnic groups but we let a lot of that shit go like, like I'm part Mexican and I'm uh, Portuguese and, but I don't sit around thinking about how Spain took over Mexico and, you know, <laughs> like colonized Mexico. Like I don't dwell on those things, you know, I don't dwell on the idea that the the Portuguese had had a large hand in slavery, for instance. It's just, like, I understand that those things took place and stuff, but I don't, you know, feel responsible for Spanish conquistadors coming and conquering land or Portuguese explorers Engaging in slavery no more than I feel responsible for George Washington owning slaves. I just, I don't, that's not a, I just, that's not an American thing. I don't think anyone holds that type of guilt. I don't even think people hold that type of guilt in terms of, well, I'm sure some people do, but like racism of the fifties and sixties in America like, I, I, I don't even feel like modern-day Americans... I don't feel like anyone nowadays f- like, feels responsible for the actions of people in the 60s. You know, I, I, I feel like the mindset between people from the 60s and now is so radically different. And the world is radically different. That this like you can't equate racism from the 60s with racism from 2022. It's different. You know, and it's nuanced. It's you know, it's not black and white. Literally and figuratively it's not, it's not black and white. There's there's subtlety and layers and things like that and I don't know. I I, I don't think the well, at least America, I don't think it's as racist as people would have you believe it is. And I, I feel like as a country, we've been able to do amazing things as Americans together that made an impact all over the world. I think like as an American, I I think that's amazing. Everything from science and music and art in film you know it's and even even just how people communicate with each other. it's I j- I just don't understand people's obsession with this idea that we live in some sort of horribly racist oppressive world given given the events of the 20th century <laughs> like I don't understand how people think that things are, As bad, if not worse. You know, that's, I mean, up until, oh my God, I want to say the 90s, early 2000s, something like that, Hanukkah didn't even, he didn't even, he wasn't even aware of, you know, he, he didn't even know much about the Algerian war or any of that stuff, you know, and when he found out about it, he was shocked he was shocked that his country doesn't actively remember that part of their history and remind the public of it. So, cause <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess that's similar to here because people here don't want to remember anything. All they want to remember, they want to cherry pick the things they want to remember. They don't want to remember historical things that have created, like, positive impacts. They just want to point out bad things that happened a really fucking long time ago. But only now, and only them, and people like them are the ones that can fix everything, which is convenient. It's like, oh, you're going to fix some shit that happened 50-plus years ago now. It's like... That's not brave. That's not courageous. That's, you know, that's picking and choosing your battles to support your fucking worldview. That's not dealing in the reality of now and dealing with the problems of now. That's It's basically creating problems so you have something to fight against. (laughs) That's basically what that is. And... And the thing with the character of George and Anne, and I, I, I think they live in this this comfortable, privileged world where the idea that they're being surveilled, this idea that somebody could mess with their life and get away with it just completely just fucks up their whole world and they can't do anything about it. Like it's just something that is inconceivable to them. And I think that's, that is a running theme in a lot of Hanukkah's films. Look at funny games, funny games, is very similar, like comfortable, well-off people who have some horrible shits, disturb their fucking peaceful little life. That is a running theme in a lot of his films. And, but the thing about it and getting back to perspective is when you see his films, it's not like you're watching this linear story where there's a beginning, middle and end, and you are observing the story as it goes along because Hanukkah will fuck with you as you're watching it, like, are you the one watching the movie, or is it somebody else, some sort of omniscient presence watching the movie, and you almost feel like somebody standing over your shoulder watching you watch the movie. So there's the, there's always this uneasiness in watching his films, and I I enjoy it. It's I enjoy a director fucking with his audience it's sort of this passive disdain for his audience. You know, it's a way of like challenging your audience and I, I like it. And that's all I really have on cachet. Like I could probably spend another couple months <laughs> just doing an even deeper dive into this movie. But, I I think I can hand it off to you, the listener now, and you can watch it and decide for yourself, like, what does it mean to you? And I think Hanukkah really ultimately wanted, wanted that wants the, the viewer to kind of decide what is this movie about and leaves things sort of ambiguous and, you know, characters um, lying by omission and, it, it, it like forces you to use your own bias to figure out where the movie is going to end up instead of being told where the movies going to end up. And um, for the record, my opinion is Pirot and Majid's son sent the fucking tapes and they're behind everything and they're fucking lying about doing it. And again, like I said before, I think everyone in this movie is a fucking liar and lying by omission is still lying because there's, you know, there's George lied about Majid and got him sent away. And like, I feel like everyone in this movie is fucking lying and they're being put into these corners where they have to tell the truth, but it's not even like the truth leads to some sort of, conclusion where there's someone has some sort of revelation or there's some sort of justice is served or anything like that it's just you're 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 kind of as lost as you were when you started the film but in the best way possible so that was cachet <laughs> And our final movie of this episode was going to be 2020's My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To from our good friends over at Dark Sky Films. They also uh, they did Carnivores and Broadcast Signal Intrusion, both of those films I've discussed on this show and... Wasn't the biggest fan of either one of those movies. They were both they're both a little interesting, but it what didn't really didn't really do it for me. But this this movie I really liked it. I came across the trailer sort of by chance. And the trailer got me, and I watched it immediately. And I like this story. This story is a take on vampire lore. It reminds me... It kind of reminds me of George Romero's film Martin, and the the, the original uh, Let the Right One In. Not the remake, but the original Let the Right One In. But those are very... The vampire lore is more in sort of the forefront of what's going on, but this is so subtle. I mean, no one even says the word vampire, I don't think. I don't even think it comes up. But this film, directed by Jonathan Quartez and starring Patrick Fugit, who you may remember as the he was in um, almost famous. He was the uh, the guy doing the article from Rolling Stone, you know, following the band around. He's the young guy, Owen Campbell and Ingrid Schram. Ingrid Schram, not to be confused with the Jorg Bucherite film Schram. <laughs> Both those movies, uh, yeah. That movie's good too. But My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To it is, again, I, it's a wonderful take on the vampire genre, but it's not specifically about vampires or vampirism or anything like that. Basically, the story, uh, which I do. I uh, think fits into this episode fairly well. It is a modern day thriller. You know, it's got it's got bits of horror sprinkled in there and drama, and it's got all that good stuff in it. But it's very, it's a very understated, quiet, methodical film, and I really enjoyed that. And let's see, what was the I don't know what the budget on this movie was, but it looks like it was done on the cheap. It was it seemed like a kind of on the cheap indie film, but it had the right actors and it had the right setting and had the right story. You know, it it did with a very tiny budget, which I mean I could imagine a re like some horrible fucking <laughs> like fucking remake of this, where it's, it's there's fucking CGI flying vampires and uh, a geyser of blood coming from the earth from hell. Or, oh god, it'd be such a fucking nightmare. Starring Will I Am and Kid Rock or something. I don't know. But this film is basically about. Three siblings Jesse, um, who I th- is probably the oldest or middle child, Dwight, who um might be the middle or oldest. It's the movie leaves out a lot of things. So, you, in leaving out a lot of the story, you and the movie being so kind of quiet and you have time to sort of think about every scene that you see during and after you see the scene so you can start piecing together the story yourself. And so, and then you have brother Thomas who's the younger sibling. So you have Jesse, you have Dwight and Thomas and the three of them live in this sort of old house together. And they're all adults, siblings. And Thomas is the youngest, and he's probably in his mid to late 20s. And Thomas has some sort of disease, some sort of affliction where he's mostly bedridden. And you find out that he's basically a vampire. All the windows in the house are covered He can't go outside during the day and he's not really allowed to go out ever. He never leaves the house and his sister, Jesse and brother Dwight are tasked with having to go find blood for Thomas because Thomas is Thomas doesn't, doesn't have the ability to fly or turn into a bat or, (laughs) he doesn't have magical powers. He doesn't have magical vampire powers. He's, they treat vampirism like a disease where you're left frail and ill. And the only thing that really can make you feel anything. The only thing that'll alleviate any of your pain is, is the consumption of blood. So Dwight played by, Patrick Fugit. He does a majority of the seeking out and procuring of blood for Thomas. Mostly through picking up drifters and homeless people. And ultimately killing them and draining their blood in his kitchen. And storing their blood in a jug that they could feed bowls of blood to Thomas. It seems that Dwight's only source of income is selling and pawning things that he acquires from his, his victims. He cleans and sells their clothes and probably sells their jewelry, whatever jewelry they happen to have that's worth anything. And, and he basically just pawns stuff and sells things that, thrift stores in order to you know, make money. Um, Jesse, on the other hand, works at a local diner as a waitress. So, this movie really only has a couple of places that it goes to. It's mostly shot in their house. There is a gross-looking motel in town that Dwight will visit from time to time because there is a local prostitute that works out of that motel and he'll go see her occasionally, not just for, for the sex, but also Dwight doesn't seem to have anyone beyond Jesse and Thomas. He doesn't seem to have any friends. He doesn't have, he's not married. He doesn't seem to have any kind of, uh, doesn't, he doesn't have anybody. He doesn't even seem to have friends at all. He just... So, not only does he pay this prostitute for sex, but also pays for just conversation with her. It's quite sad. And Thomas just stays home all day. He just stays home and... waits for Dwight and Jesse to get blood for him. And... <laughs> And, uh, and one thing about Dwight and the prostitute is Jesse happens to come upon Dwight at the motel rather, uh, I think it was before, I don't remember if it was before or after, but I believe it was before, like well he was going there to meet up with the prostitute and she sees Dwight and just the look on her face was just tells you everything. She was a combination of almost jealousy that Dwight has some sort of, some sort of relationship with somebody outside of her her and Thomas. And it's a sexual relationship that he has. Also, (laughs) you have to assume that Dwight is paying for the prostitute with the proceeds of things stolen off of victims his murder victims so and you kind you kind of feel you feel for Dwight because he's clearly not he doesn't like having to kill people to but he loves his brother and he he has to get blood for Thomas because Thomas doesn't seem to have the ability to hunt like a regular vampire he's not going out at night and killing people for their blood he it he, he does he seems very passive and I don't I don't know if he would even want to I, even if he had to i I don't know if he'd have the stomach for it you know it's like his vampirism is a disease it's not something that turns him into this murderous beast in of the night it's that's not really how his, uh, how his vampire affliction works. And things like how did he become a vampire and how long has he been a vampire and things like that are not explained. You know, you're just... The movie comes in right where their lives are now. Not... It's not an origin story. There's no flashbacks. It's just this is their life now. You don't know where the rest of their family is, their parents. It's just the three of them. And this is their life. And it's, I know it sounds really bleak and sad, and it is, but it's totally watchable. It's totally watchable. The movie is a a bit of a slow burn, but... I found it com- to be completely enjoyable to watch. It kept my attention the whole time. Oh, <laughs> also the, oh, the, uh, the prostitute, uh, Jesse ends up killing the prostitute and b- <laughs> she, she brings the prostitute back home and she, and Dwight's face of just like, what the fuck sis, you killed the only prostitute in might in town. Now you killed my favorite prostitute, but um from Jesse's perspective, Jesse's very much a much more cold-blooded person than Dwight is. It's she saw the prostitute as a drifter person who no one's gonna miss if she disappears. So she just saw her as food for for Thomas. But at the same time, you can tell that she also has the added benefit of Dwight not having this, uh, this woman around to uh, distract him from his duties as a blood collector for his ailing younger brother. And there comes a point, like the movie uh, Martin, which I is one of my favorite vampire if if not my favorite vampire movie ever. I love the film Martin and I'll eventually cover it on the show. It's great. And if you can get a hold of it, please watch it. It's fucking great great movie. There comes a point in the story where because Thomas is not this creature of the night with fangs and spooky eyes and superhuman strength or whatever he's you wonder is he really a vampire or is he like mentally ill and his his mental illness part of his mental illness is his he thinks he needs to drink blood in order to survive or maybe it's this group psychosis where the whole family is thinks that they have to Feed Thomas blood like where did they get this idea in their head was this something like passed down from their parents is this something that just happened one day you know it's like how long has Thomas been like this you don't know and that sort of that quiet frustration of not knowing just really adds to this this quiet tension that that is just permeates film. But there's one scene where you get some confirmation that Thomas actually is a vampire. There's this thing where Thomas is really lonely. He doesn't socialize with anyone besides his brother and sister. And Jesse and Dwight are kind of, they're not the most exciting people in the world. And like Thomas, um, they're at dinner. They're sitting having dinner one night and Thomas is like, I hear children outside playing during the day. Could one of you maybe like. See if any of them would want to come over. And like hang out with me. Because I need somebody to hang out with. I need friends. And Jesse's like you don't need friends. You have us. And she's. He's <laughs> Thomas is like yeah I know I have you. But he's like I need. Friends that aren't you. I need other people around me. Because I'm going fucking crazy over here. At one point. Thomas tries to. He writes a note and folds it into a paper airplane. And he kind of works up the nerve to open the door and throw the airplane out to some kids that are passing by. And right as he opens the door and throws the plane, Dwight runs up behind him with a sheet and covers him and pulls him inside and slams the door because he can't go outside because he'll die because vampires die in sunlight, obviously. And he pulls him inside, and when he takes the sheet off of him, the arm that Thomas threw the paper airplane with is blistered and burnt. And you're like, holy fuck, he is a fucking vampire. But, that, but he was willing to take that chance of becoming injured or po- possibly dying just to communicate with somebody else outside and this whole movie is like that. It's these, it's all these people kind of living in this shitty town and who are just desperate for, um, well, Thomas is more of like, like all three of them are alone, but Thomas is desperate to not be alone. He needs to be social, you know, and he wants to be social And Dwight is not very social. What, what he wants is to get away from the situation. He wants to be able to find a life of his own. He's desperate to find a, a, a life of his own and he doesn't care how or where it is. It's just, he wants to resolve this situation. He doesn't want to care for Thomas the rest of his life. He doesn't, he just wants to get away from this whole thing. I mean, he loves his brother and his sister, but he just is going crazy having to be put in this position of like having to kill people to keep his brother alive. And Jesse is sort of beyond that point. Like she's, she has no, she's pretty much dead inside. (laughs) She's she has no hopes or dreams or wanting to escape the situation. Like she is, she is in for the long haul. So you have these three lonely people who are just stuck with each other. You know, it's 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 kind of depressing, but having this whole vampire plot going on is a good vehicle to move these people's story around because if it was just a thing where Thomas had cancer or some type of regular disease where he was kind of bedridden, like this movie would be fucking hard to watch because it's just too real at that point. It's just way too real. But since his disease is vampirism, it makes you wonder, well, what's going to happen next? Because everything seems to be slowly escalating. Eventually, um, because eventually you, you feel that they're, they're going to slip up. Eventually they're going to fuck up eventually. And Dwight's going to get caught or Jesse's going to get caught or Thomas is going to work up the nerve to get out of the house. And who knows what will happen if that happens. And the latter ends up happening. Thomas eventually is able to convince a local kid outside to come and come into his home. He actually found the paper airplane with the note on it. And this kid came to the door and Thomas was like, please come inside. And he had the most innocent of intentions. Like, Thomas didn't want to harm the kid or anything. He just wanted a friend. You know, and his character is very sad and pathetic. And, you know, you feel for him. You really feel for Thomas because he's... You know, he's, he's a burden on his family. But at the same time, he's... It's not his fault. So... But he ends up luring a kid into the house. And then It's a situation where... Shit goes sideways, sideways where Dwight shows up and almost kills the fucking kid because he's like, what are you doing in my house? Did you break in my house? What do you want? Like, And now Dwight lets the fucking kid go and he's basically like, all right, you know what? Get the fuck out of here. Go home. And then Jesse comes home and and is like, like you can't let that fucking kid get away, Dwight. Go get him now. Dwight goes after the fucking kid and you're like, Oh fuck. Dwight's going to kill the goddamn kid. And he runs him down with his fucking truck and the kid goes flying off his bike and shit. And Dwight ends up not killing the kid. He basically drives the kid home and he's like, do you understand what's going to happen if I ever see you again? The kid's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, all right, get the fuck out of my truck basically. So he spared the kid. Going against what um, Jesse's <laughs> go fucking kill him, find him and kill him. It's but that whole that whole situation of Thomas just wanting to have a friend is what eventually unravels their whole deal. It, it unravels their whole little depressing world that they have created. And, um, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be fucking cool and not fucking spoil the shit, but it's a good little movie. It's uh you know, it's, it's, it's it, it, it was a 90 minutes, but it flew by, flew right by. And I like the story and, I like how it ended and I liked, that's the the thing that's so genius about fucking, like, we will never not have fucking vampire movies because you can do so much with a vampire movie. You can do a fucking tween, ridiculous fucking love story like Twilight, or you can do Blade. (laughs) You know, it's, you can go in so many different directions. You can do something like Only Lovers Left Alive, the Jim Jarmusch film. That's probably one of another vampire movie. That's one of my favorite vampire movies and you you can go in so many different directions and I this is this was a nice refreshing new take on the vampire genre and and it's very sparse. Like the whole movie doesn't answer all your questions, but it gives you enough to kind of Be uneasy with what's going on, and there's characters you sympathize with and ones that you don't, and it's it's a good story. It's a it's a good indie film, and I definitely definitely recommend it, as well as recommend Cache. So check out Cache. Check out my heart on my (laughs) such a long title like an italian giallo title my heart can't beat unless you tell it to i definitely recommend my heart can't beat unless you tell it to please check it out it's streaming right now you can it's easy to find it's it's a if you have a roku tv like i do it's a fucking pain in the ass typing that shit out but um but you know check out the trailer check out the trailer and um Let's see if it uh, hooked you the way it hooked me. Because that trailer got me. I watched the movie right after I watched the trailer. Well, this was fun. This was fun. I'm so glad I didn't do a three, four hour long fucking episode. I wasn't even really planning on it lasting this long. But the modern, modern cult thriller movies good time from the safety brothers Cache from uh, Michael Haneke and my heart can't beat unless you tell it to from Jonathan Karatas who I've never heard of but he made a damn good movie so I'm gonna get out of here guys thank you so very much for listening I really appreciate it especially if you made it this far <laughs> I really appreciate it. And if you want to get a hold of me or if you just want to keep track of what the hell's going on with uh, Skeleton Factory, go to Instagram at skeleton underscore factory for all goings ons, And that's the best way to get a hold of me. Well, thank you so much for listening. This has been the Skeleton Factory Podcast, rescuing your movie night, one movie at a time. Catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.